Hello and welcome to the Foreign Press Podcast. I'm Nia Krofi Smartabe. This is an educational program from the Association of Foreign Press Correspondents USA. This podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcast. You may have probably heard the saying, when the US sneezes, the world catches a cold. It's just a casual way of saying whatever happens in the US has a ripple effect either all around the world or in most parts of the world. There is no denying the fact that the United States has for a long time been at the forefront of advancing democracy around the world. It's therefore no wonder that when Americans head to the polls to elect a new president, the world keenly follows the outcome of that election. The past two presidential elections in the US, that is the election of 2016 and 2020, captured global attention not just because of the personalities involved, but because of the multitude of concerns around alleged rigging and foreign interference before, during and after the elections. As journalists, we know election coverage can be a demanding task. And I should know because I have covered quite a few in my own country, Ghana, in parts of Africa and here in the United States. It gets even more taxing when you're not entirely conversant with the local electoral laws or don't have a full understanding of the workings of a country's political system. So what do foreign journalists need to know about the US political system and its election cycle? How should they prepare for the upcoming 2024 presidential election? Joining us with answers to these questions and more is Dr. Todd Belt, Director of the Political Management Program at the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University. He also taught political science at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. His research and writing focuses on the mass media, public opinion, the presidency, campaigns and elections, and is author of four books including The Presidency and Domestic Policy, Comparing Leadership Styles, FDR to Obama. Dr. Belt, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast uh, to discuss this very important uh, topic. Um, let's start with what I'd say is more like the basics. Give us a brief background of the U.S. political system. The two things to really understand about the U.S. political system is that we have three separate branches of government at the federal level, that is the national level, and we have something called federalism, which is a separation of the powers between the states and the national government. And we have elections at both levels. Most people pay attention to the federal level, although the state uh, and local levels are very important as well. Mm. So um, let's go into the... Um, the federal level, I believe, which is the, where we have the three arms of government like almost every other country has. How do they work in the U.S.? Because we often hear politicians talk about there must be separation of powers when it comes to the various arms of government. Is there absolute separation of powers amongst them in the U.S.? Right. There is no absolute separation of powers uh, in the United States. There are what are called shared powers that are shared by uh, more than one branch of government, sometimes two. Uh, but for the most part, there are separate powers. The um, Supreme Court, of course, is the only 
branch of government that is not elected. They are nominated by the president and then confirmed by the U.S. Senate. The U.S. Congress is composed of two chambers. It has the House of Representatives, which has 435 full voting members, all of whom have to run for office every two years, uh, including the Speaker of the House. There are some non-voting delegates uh, and uh, resident commissioners of some U.S. territories, but they're not considered full members. And then we have the U.S. Senate, and there are two senators for every state. What's interesting about the Senate is one-third of the Senate will run every two years, so you can't replace the whole Senate all at once like you can in the House of Representatives. In the Senate, the senators serve for six-year terms, so one-third every two years, so over six years uh, they can cycle in and out. And of course there is the U.S. President, and the President is elected through a system called the Electoral College, and the President may serve two elected terms. Uh, that is the only branch that has a limit on the number of terms that can be served uh, at the federal level. Hmm. So we'll come to the president in a bit and, you know, how they are elected and the electoral college and all that. But let's start with how this whole process of getting into power, for instance, begins, which is campaigning. How different is the U.S. campaign process from, say, the U.K. or other countries that practice maybe federalism or have a Republican government? Right. There are a couple unique things about the United States system of elections. Uh, the first of which is that we don't have restrictions on the amount of time that you can campaign. A lot of uh, countries do have that, which uh, condenses the amount. Uh, this makes it so that people can raise money and go out and talk to voters for a very long period of time. Uh, and we're seeing even some presidential candidates for 2024 have already announced and are out talking to voters. Mm -hmm. We see at a number of different levels we have what are called plurality elections uh, for the most part. And that means the person with the most votes wins the seat. Uh, in the United States you vote for an individual. You do not vote for a party, so that makes it somewhat different from some other uh, systems of government where you might have proportional representation. We generally have two phases to the election. We have what's called the nomination or the primary phase, where the parties will choose their uh, nominee to go to the general election. Generally, the primary or nomination phase is in the spring. And the general election is always set by the federal government. It is the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And so that's where you have the party nominees in most of the states run against each other. Now, of course, the United States Constitution uh, is really unique in that it devolves the powers to run elections down to the states, which means the, the states can actually have different types of rules uh, for when they set their elections and how they're run. Not all of them have a system where only the top vote-getter from each party goes to the general election. That's most of them, but there are a couple states that are unique. Uh, these include California, Louisiana, and Georgia, which have what's called a runoff system. In California, they call it the jungle primary, where everybody runs all together. In which case, if you get over 50% of the vote, you can win outright in the primary. Uh, if you don't get 50% of the vote, then the top two vote-getters go off to the general election, and those two could be members of the same party, which makes that kind of unique. 
So then that would also explain probably what those of us in New York, for instance, like me, experiences where it feels like every year <laughs> there is some type of election happening. And we are like, wait, what's what's happening? Because this year there is like the city council and other elections happening. What's the cycle like? Right. That's what's very interesting about the United States is we have the federal election cycle, which, of course, uh, is set by the Constitution. I mentioned this earlier. That is uh, every two years, all of the House, every uh, two years, one third of the Senate and every four years, the president will run. But it's different by state. Uh, We have gubernatorial elections. That's what we call it when a governor is elected. Some of those are done in what we call midterm elections. That's what we've got. We just had in 2022. A midterm election is one that comes halfway through the president's term. We use that as sort of the placeholder. And then we have what are called off-year elections. And off-year elections are ones that come uh, in the year between the midterm and the um, presidential year elections. And we have some states that have elections in those years, like Virginia and New Jersey had elections for their governor and their legislatures in 2021, and in, yeah. and they have them in 2023 as well in some states. Mm. Okay, so then now let's talk about the, let's go back to the primaries that you mentioned. That's where the parties or the candidates that will represent parties get selected. But a lot tend to happen at that level. What are the rules for the primaries? Is it like the same set of rules that the Democrats have that applies to the Republicans? Or do the Republicans have a different set of rules from the the Democrats? For the House of Representatives and the Senate uh, at the state level, those are all the same rules. For the president, for the nomination of the U.S. president, it's a little bit different. And it used to be uh, a long time ago that it was uh, at the conventions that the people who went to the conventions, generally the uh, party bosses from each of the different states, would get together and as delegates to the convention, they would select who they would have as their uh, nominee for president and that would go on to the general election. Now the delegates at the convention still make that determination, but how those delegates are selected is in some way tied to a popular vote within each of the states. And what's really interesting for the presidential level is that in the nomination phase, or what we call the primary phase, you have a series of elections that take place. Generally, you'll see that uh, you'll have Iowa and New Hampshire are usually the first ones who do it. Uh, Their state constitution requires that they be first. Uh, followed by a number of different states. Generally, you'll have a number of states do it all at once. We sometimes call that Super Tuesday, which is where a number of states will make their selection. And then based upon how the parties allocate these, uh, the results, that can be what's called a winner-take-all state, where all the delegates from the state will go to the convention, or it could be uh, what's called a proportional uh, allocation, which uh, it usually, if you get over 15%, you will get some delegates from those states. And the rules for the Democrats and the Republicans regarding allocation are a little bit different. And the rules for making those selections, whether it's a primary, uh, which is an election, you go to a, uh, the, the polls and you make your selection or you vote absentee, uh, is one way. And the other way is what's called a caucus. And that's what happens in Iowa. In Iowa, you actually have to show up at a given time 
to uh, maybe a school cafeteria or you know some public building uh, with the other members of the party and the people who live in your area and then you cast a vote from your area and then there's a subsequent uh, number of voting that happens until somebody gets a proportion from a certain area. The parties like this because it gets people involved in the process. It's a little more onerous because you have to show up somewhere at a given time and take part in a long process. But the parties like it because it can help build uh, the, the party base a little bit more and get people more involved and energized in the process. But of course, in caucuses, because they are a bit more onerous, you have lower turnout in those elections. You have to really motivate people to get there. You have to provide buses to get people there. So it's really a strength of your organization rather than just popularity. Uh, so generally, you have the Iowa caucuses first. Uh, strength of organization is really a test there. And then you have the New Hampshire primaries after that. Democrats have changed things this year. It looks like they're going to move South South Carolina. South Carolina. Right. I was going to ask you about that. that yeah. But they have switched it around this year. They have switched it around this year. South Carolina is going to be uh, ahead of New Hampshire. A lot of people have said for a long time that New Hampshire is not a good test of the viability of a candidate in a general election. And the reason for that is New Hampshire is uh, not very diverse uh, it's pretty white uh, in terms of the population. It's also a bit more conservative than the rest of the party. A state more like uh, South Carolina looks more like the rest of the Democratic Party. And so the parties set their rules and they can change them from election to election. And they have these selections of delegates through a primary or caucus system that is tied to the votes of the people of the party started in 1972 and it gets tweaked or adjusted every four years in certain ways and the change of south carolina is one of those tweaks generally what we see is the democrats do it first and then the republicans will make their changes maybe a little different maybe similar the next four years down the line so okay let me ask a question that's just gnawing at my my brain right now Whose whose idea was it to start this whole primary thing? Let's say to make Iowa the first. It, it's not part of the it's, the. it's not a constitutional requirement, right? The parties just decided to do it. No, it's the states that decided when they're going to set their primary or caucus date. And Iowa and New Hampshire have rules on the books in their states that say. No, Whatever the first one is, ours is going to be 10 days ahead or two weeks ahead or something like that. And that's and then and the states want to be first because they want the presidential candidates to come to their states, to interact with their voters and to make promises that will benefit the states. And so that's why you have a process of what we call front loading of the calendar where states will keep trying to leapfrog one another to get more ahead in the process so that they can have uh, a more prominent position in the calendar. Okay, just so I, I get it completely, it's just the fact that, okay, all the states know that definitely the candidates will come to them and they will have to elect at some point, but others believe that there's an advantage in having the candidates stop over at our place first and have us select them first. If well, I'm getting it's, it correct. it's actually not the case that all states will get the candidates to go there. Uh, if you look at how many candidates we have right now, there as of, we're recording right now, there are 12 candidates who are vying for mm -hmm. the Republican nomination. 
to, to go against uh, Joe Biden next year. Uh, if after the first two or three or four of the primaries and caucuses, a lot of candidates will realize that they're not getting enough money, they're not getting enough volunteers, they're not getting enough endorsements to really make their candidacy viable, and they'll drop out. And so it's not true that you'll get to see all of the candidates. In fact, it's possible to get enough delegates to the convention quite a ways before the end of the process. Uh, and so sometimes you'll know before, while some states are still voting, well, Joe Biden has this one wrapped up because he has enough delegates to the convention. One of the things that Democrats have done, interestingly, that Republicans haven't, is they have what's called superdelegates, which are party insiders uh, who are added to the total uh, number of delegates that are allocated by the voting. And so uh, in 2008, it was Barack Obama running against Hillary Clinton. It actually came down to the last state and then who was going to get those superdelegates and Barack Obama got more of them. In uh, 2016, it happened again when you had uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton lined up more of those superdelegates. And so those both went to the end. But usually in the primary process, you know who's going to be the nominee before you get to the last state. And I should also mention that the U.S. territories are able to send delegates to the, uh, to the conventions as well. So they do get some representation in who the parties choose as their nominee. Okay, so there's definitely an advantage in, going, in being the first of the states to um, nominate or elect in the primaries because then if the other candidates drop out, at least you would have had the chance to hear them and, you know, get their promises or whatever. Correct. This is, what we, this is what we call the winnowing process. Some people say that uh, it is a long, arduous process for people to go through this to, to get the nomination. But when you have some smaller states that are starting first, then some people who are not as well known and might have some good ideas are able to go out and meet with people and talk with them and try to promote their candidacy. But generally, if you don't finish first, second, or third in the first few contests, you're probably not going to make it to the end because the media will focus their attention on the top candidates, which means that people will volunteer for them. The people who will contribute finances to the campaigns will focus on those people as well, considering them more electable. So uh, this has an effect on who we get as well. Okay. All right. Thanks for that uh, for that clarification. Now, let's talk about the presidential election itself, which is what the entire world focuses on every um, four years when it's happening in the U.S. The 2016 election in particular got a lot of us foreign journalists scratching our heads because we that was when we got to hear a lot more about Electoral College because in my country, for instance, it's usually the popular vote that counts. You get 50% plus one, you are elected as president. Then we get to understand that Hillary Clinton has more popular votes, but not the Electoral College. And Donald Trump had the Electoral College, but not the popular vote. So he emerges winner. So walk us through, help us understand this two different sets of, uh, uh, I don't know how, how to call them, um, criteria, I guess is the right word. Certainly. Yeah, the, um, I'll give you the history behind it, and then I'll tell you how it ends up uh, affecting the vote and the strategy uh, behind okay. it as well. 
first of all, um, and by the way, this happened in 2000 as well, uh, when Al Gore got more of the popular vote than George W. Bush, but George W. Bush okay. got them in states that mattered more, in like states like Florida. And I'll explain why that's important in a moment. Uh, but this goes back to the U.S. Constitution. And it was difficult to get the U.S. Constitution passed. And this was part of what was called the Great Compromise between the small states and the large states. And when I say small and large, I mean in terms of population. The okay. larger states wanted to have one chamber of Congress that was based proportionately on the population of the states. The smaller states wanted equal representation for each of the states. Uh, and so the Great Compromise said, okay, what we're going to do is the two branches of government that are elected will have two chambers uh, in the Congress, the House, which is proportional to the size of the state, and the Senate, which is equal representation per state. And then for the election of the presidency, we're going to combine the two. So each state will get the number of votes based upon how many members of the House it has, plus how many members of the Senate it has. And that's how many people, how many votes will be cast by that state towards the presidential election. So the minimum number a state can have, therefore, is three, because every state is guaranteed two members in, in the Senate and one member in the House. A very small state like Wyoming has three, whereas a state like California, which has 53 members in the House of Representatives, and uh, two, two senators has 55 electoral votes, uh, which, is, um, which is pretty amazing. Uh, but even though they're saying, that means that you know, larger states will have a bigger say uh, in, in the electoral outcome. But if you're going to be strategic about how you're going to do this, you have to get to the number it takes to win, which is 270. You have to have 50% plus one of the electoral college. 50% okay. is 269. There are 538 mm. electors. You might have uh, heard me say earlier, we have 435 members of the House of Representatives. We have 100 members of the Senate. That's 535. There's an extra three there that are given to the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C. Even though it doesn't have full voting members of the House and Senate, they get as many electors as they would have if they were a state. And that was okay. done through it, through an amendment to the Constitution. So we have 538 electoral votes up for grabs. 269 is exactly half, which doesn't get it there. You have to get mm. to over 269. So it, we say it's 270 to win. That's the number that you have to get to. And so strategically, the way this plays out is there are some states that are pretty slanted towards one party over another. For example, California, they're not gonna vote for a Republican. Any Republican uh, nominee for president who starts spending money in California and spending their time in California, they're pretty much wasting their time unless they're raising money to try to spend it in other states. There are certain mm -hmm. states we call the swing states. The swing states are ones that could vote either way. They could vote for either a Democrat or a Republican. The mm -hmm. solid states are ones where you're sort of wasting your time if you spend any time there. A state like Idaho, very, very Republican. No Democrat's going to want to spend any time. Biden's probably not going to visit Idaho during a, pres <laughs> during a presidential campaign next year. Uh, not going to happen. Like I said, unless he's, uh, you know, doing something to raise money or, or something like yeah. that. So the swing states generally have been 
Until recently, Florida has been an extremely important swing state, but it's become much more Republican in the past 10 years or so. The swing states that we're looking at that are likely to be the real pivotal ones that will control the outcome of the election, right? So because each state, each party is going to have, or each nominee of each party is going to have a number of votes that they can depend on. Those solid states that are going to vote for their party no matter what. And then there's about 12 or 15 that could go either way. These include states such as Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, New Hampshire. They used to say, as Ohio goes, so goes the nation, because they always voted for the winner. Uh, that's not true anymore. Ohio's become much more Republican. But some states, uh, such as Georgia, Georgia used to be a pretty solid Republican state. Now it's a swing state. North Carolina is considered a swing state as well. Voted once for Barack Obama, but has been voting Republican ever since then. Virginia is also considered a, a swing state as well. So those are some of the ones that uh, I think that we'll be focusing on more. So the goal is to get the electoral votes. It's not to get the absolute popular vote. And this actually makes it a bit more difficult for the Democratic candidate because it's easier for Republicans to run up the electoral votes because the solid Republican states tend to be lower population states. States like Wyoming, Idaho, Montana, those types of places. And the states with higher populations tend to be the solid Democratic ones. States like New York and California, meaning that uh, the the number that Republicans start off with is a bit higher. Uh, it's easier for Republicans because of this to win an electoral vote majority while not getting a popular vote majority. And here's where the real conundrum comes in. <laughs> okay. So what should we be looking at when we are thinking of the electoral votes and and the popular votes in brief for us as foreign journalists well uh you shouldn't really be looking at the popular vote at all uh that, because okay. that's not that's not what wins it uh there are people <laughs> okay. in, there are people in some states uh, i used to live in the state of hawaii i was a professor out there before i came to washington dc and there were a lot of republicans who just wouldn't vote in hawaii because it was a solidly democratic state uh, so mm. the popular vote doesn't really reflect the absolute popularity of the candidate because some people in some states just aren't going to vote because they know it's not going to affect the outcome of their state in the presidential election. Uh, what the candidates are competing for and what really matters are those electoral votes. And mm. because of those states that aren't going to change, like I, like I said, we have to look at the swing states. So anybody who's out there thinking about where they want to spend their time next year in terms of <laughs> talking to the voters who are going to be the most pivotal and most important in determining the outcome election, I'd say go to places like North Carolina, Virginia, Georgia, and of course those three states that are extremely important and have controlled the election in the past couple uh, cycles, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. I'd even say Arizona as well. That's going to be an important one too. Okay. So about the voting process itself, what are the do's and don'ts that um, we have to observe, if I can put that way, for us as um, foreign journalists covering the elections? 
Right. What's uh, important to realize is there are access uh, requirements that are different by state. What you need to look for is the Office of Elections or what's sometimes called the, the Secretary of State of each state that controls the elections. And so what you can do as a reporter, how close you can get to the counting procedures, how close you can get to the polling stations, how you're going to get information on the results from the state is different in every single state. So what you have to do is you have to do a little bit of background research on the state you want to be in or states you want to monitor uh, while, you're, um, while you're going to go out there and, and do your observations. Okay. So we so essentially you apply for accreditation through the office of the the state secretary. Is that the, the correct designation? Uh, I'm not sure exactly if you have to be accredited, but I would go to the Secretary of State's website first, or uh, the to state the off, office of elections to get the information on okay. how you can cover it, where you can go. Uh, the distance from the polling station you have to be, which is also different in every state. Uh, some, in some places you can talk to people pretty close to the polling station. In some places there is a distance limit. Uh, and, and the other aspects I mentioned of, uh, of observing and uh, receiving the final tallies of the vote are different in every state. So finally, before we let you go, Dr. Dr. Belt, with, uh, 2024 is right around the corner. So now you've told us what to be looking at is the electoral college and not necessarily the popular vote. But um, as foreign correspondents, what should we be focusing on in general as the build up to the 2024 election shifts in, into gear? Yeah, I've got a couple things for you on this that you should really look at. Uh, one of the things that uh, happened after the 2020 election is a lot of people were very concerned about election fraud and who was counting the votes. And some states even changed their election laws. States like Texas and Georgia and Florida changed some of the rules that would allow legislatures to even overrule the certification uh, that was done by the independent secretary of state. Uh, so finding out the information on how the state is going to be telling in those uh, different changes in the rules, uh, where people can drop off absentee ballots, who can collect those ballots, when they're even counted. Uh, some states, such as Pennsylvania, they don't even open the ballots and start counting them until after the polls have closed, Others, which makes the results take a long time. That's one of the reasons we had to find out that John Fetterman beat Dr. Oz back in uh, 2022. It took a while to determine that one. That's going to be the case. So knowing what's going on there, observing what's going on by the uh, by the counting boards in each of the states and the counties is going to be very, very important. And the other thing I'll mention is don't forget to observe the other federal races, the House and the Senate, of course, those are very <laughs> important, and the, the non-federal races. Uh, what happens at the state level is incredibly important. The governors are extremely important. Members of the state legislature are very important. And some states even elect their state Supreme Courts. As our Congress and our president find it more difficult to work together because of the hyper-partisanship that has happened uh, in the United States, more and more is getting done by the states and the local levels, meaning that these other elections can be even more important on the types of policies that shape people's lives and are really worth uh, paying attention to. All right, Dr. Todd Belt, thank you so much for your time and for walking us through the 
、uh, U.S. political system on the podcast. My pleasure. Great talking to you.、And、great talking to you too. That's it for this episode of the Foreign Press podcast. Check our show notes for a link to Dr. Belt's full profile and titles of his other books. Visit our website www.foreignpresscorrespondence.org for more educational resources produced by the AFPC USA, and check out our dedicated press freedom platform. The address is www.pressfreedom.org for updates on global press freedom violations. Find us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are at Foreign Press USA. I hope you join us again next time for another episode of the Foreign Press podcast. I'm Niyakrofi Smatabe. See you soon.